Welcome to the Creator State, where we share stories of social innovation and entrepreneurship for movers, shakers, creators, and changemakers. Each episode will celebrate success and failure, ingenuity, and the endless pursuit of knowledge, from education to implementation. Join us as we explore everything in between. The Creator State. How hard is it to take an ugly photo? Former corporate lawyer turned photographer Chris Jordan is certainly trying. For many years, he's been looking through his lens at the destructive power of our culture and global mass consumption. He's documented devastation following Hurricane Katrina and visited Midway Island for photo and video projects about plastic pollution responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of seabirds. Chris's TED Talk, Turning Powerful Stats into Art, has received more than 1.7 million views. And his documentary, Albatross, is currently available as free public artwork and screening all over the world. Chris's heartbreaking art inspires viewers to reflect on the consequences of convenience and the effect of our collective consumption habits, elevating his work into environmental activism. So exactly how hard is it to take an ugly photo? Chris says it can't be done. Even while photographing heaps of discarded electronics, Chris sees that beauty permeates everything in our world. Join us for a thought-provoking conversation with Chris Jordan about how to find hope and beauty amidst despair and learn more about his exhibition, Intolerable Beauty, on view at UCR's Barber and Art Culver Center of the Arts in downtown Riverside through January 2020. I'm your host, Rickerby Hines, and welcome to The Creator State. So, Chris, I wanted to begin by asking you, when someone asks you, what do you do, what do you say to them? Oh, man, that's a hard question these <laughs> days. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I guess I could call myself an artist. Um, for a while there, I would have said filmmaker, but I've only made one film, and I don't know if I'm going to make another. Okay. Um, what I'm interested in most of all lately is just the beauty of our world. And uh, I'm 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 turning back toward photography, so I guess I would call myself a photographer these days. When you say the beauty of our world, what what do you mean by that? There was a really long period, from maybe 15 years of 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 my work, where I was looking at the darkness, you know, like looking at all the bad news. Yeah. And the the particular corner of darkness that I was most interested in was the the effects of mass consumption. Wow. You know, yes. Global mass consumption, like all of the plastic we're throwing away and all the cars we're throwing away and all the phones we're throwing away. And I, I, I guess I, I mean, I call myself an environmentalist, but I hate that that's even a category. You know, we wow. should all be environmentalists and, and, and care about these things. But I noticed that the that myself and also I think maybe the whole environmental movement is is kind of in this paradigm of only looking at the bad news and thinking that's the whole story. Yeah. And that's what the, the Albatross project uh, really, you know, the, my work on Midway Island really kind of represented for me is, is a midway point where I crossed over from only looking at the bad news to kind of holding more in balance. The Yes, there's the bad news. We have to keep looking at it. But there's this other thing that is it's so obvious it's like the water we swim in is the the magnificent beauty the miracle that we're all a part of 
you know, the mystery of what is even, what is this gift of life that we've each been given yeah. and to try to hold all of those things in, in more of a balanced way. What has your journey been from the one to the other or has it been a journey? Is it a parallel space that you, you occupy? Well, I mean, I've always been really interested in beauty and its role in consciousness and in the world. And I remember when I was doing my photographic series that I call Intolerable Beauty. Yes. I was looking at horrible things, like giant, incomprehensibly huge piles of garbage and yeah. piles of crushed cars. And however I photographed it, it was always beautiful. Wow. Wow. And I, I even got annoyed after a while. <laughs> and I tried to take an ugly photograph. Um and that that was the very beginning of my series that I call Running the Numbers. And what I did was I got uh, I, I made a photograph of four hundred and it was four hundred twenty six thousand silver cell phones with wow. no color, with no pattern, with no arrangement, just like a noise pattern yeah. of the number of phones that we throw out every day. And I wanted it to be ugly. And when I printed it. And as a giant print, like a five by 10 foot print, just there's an exquisiteness in the fineness of the detail and in the randomness of that pattern. And I couldn't help but see that it's beautiful. And so it's like those things permeate our world. Like you can't, there's no corner of the world where there isn't beauty. It's like the envelope in which everything else is, is held in every moment. And and at the same time, I found myself as an artist, like always turning toward the bad news and just this sort of blah, kind of energy, like blah, bad news is getting worse and worse. Blah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I went to Midway Island is, is with that kind of energy to photograph the birds whose bodies are filled with plastic. Wow. And when we got there, I met the live birds. And just imagine the experience of walking out into a field of hundreds of thousands of birds. Albatrosses are as big as eagles. So imagine if you could walk into a field of, a, of hundreds of thousands of eagles all standing on the ground. Wow. And as you walk among them, not only do they not run away or fly away, but they actually come toward us. And so if you sit down amongst them pretty soon, you're surrounded by them. And they have absolutely no fear of humans. And they're, they're amazing, like spiritual beings. You can feel their sentience and, and their intelligence and, and their love for each other. And I realized that there was so much more to the story than just the tragedy of their bodies filled with plastic. And that felt like a symbol that sort of applied to my whole life and to the whole world. Man, that is, that is such a... A, a great visual for you to be able to describe it. I know a lot of times when we work in our own medium that we, you know, as a playwright for me, words are the medium. Uh, and, you know, for you to be able to, to describe and, and evoke that moment is, is, is very compelling. Tell me a little bit about what's your creative process? What is that process for you? Clearly it will differ from project to project. Well, it's uh, for me the it's all about the subject. And so, and what I mean by that is I, I get interested in a particular subject. And what I want to do is to fully encounter that thing, whether it's a pile of broken glass 
or birds on an island on uh, on a remote island or a dead elephant that's been killed for his tusks wow. um, that I went and photographed in Kenya like whatever the subject is I want to try to get past being an artist making a composition creating something because of that I don't have to create anything the thing is already there wow all I have to do is see it as deeply as I can like get past my preconceptions or my judgments get past words huh. names and labels and get to a place at least as far as possible within the limitations of our mind to seeing that thing encountering that thing on its terms and then simply offer a document that this is what I saw. I want to hit on on something that's that's close to that, which is how do you know when a project is worth pursuing? Like this is a, the next thing I want to do. That's such a such an interesting question because I I don't know. Huh. Um, and it it's always a scary place for me to end a project, and to be asking myself that question, like how am I going to know? Yeah. When, what to focus my resources on? Because there's always a list, like always new things are coming, and like how how am I going to know if that's the one? Yeah. But I do know there have been two times when a project just reached out and grabbed me, and one time was during uh, soon after Hurricane Katrina, when uh, I, when I made the decision to go down and and photograph in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and the other time was when I first learned about the birds whose bodies are filled with plastic on Midway Island. Wow. And both of those times, there was an experience that I'll never forget. And on, on Midway, I can tell you the story of exactly the moment that this happened. Um, I had learned about ocean plastic pollution. Um, it was 2008, and, and the Great Pacific Garbage Patch was just starting to be in, in the news yeah. and people talking about it. And, and I got interested in it, in trying to make some kind of artwork that would depict it. And so I went to a meeting of, uh, of a group of scientists and activists. It was basically everybody in the world who knew anything about the Pacific Garbage Patch. Uh-huh. And it was a little room of about 15 people. And I learned that you can't photograph it, that the plastic is spread out over millions of square miles of ocean and there's not a patch. Um, so, and one of the scientists specifically looked at me and he said, you can't take a photograph of the Pacific Garbage Patch. Huh. And I remember I slapped my knee in frustration and I said, damn, I'm a photographer. <laughs> I want to take a photograph of the Pacific Garbage Patch. And a young woman named Anna Cummins turned to me. She was sitting right next to me and she said, if you want to take a photograph of the Pacific Garbage Patch, go to Midway Island and look inside the stomachs of dead baby albatrosses. Wow. And I remember that moment. It was like a shock. And I said, wait a second. Midway Island, like, you mean that tiny island that's in the very, very middle of the Pacific Ocean? <laughs> and she said, that's the place. And I just, I heard a sound. It was like the sound of a bell in the very, very back of a, of a huge temple, like a, in a cathedral. Wow. Just this, wah, just this sound. And it was like the, my internal compass just turned toward Midway, Midway Island, and I was just pulled there like a magnet. So tell me when you got there. I know you, you've already put, put us in the, you know, in the middle of the space earlier. What was there 
that augmented this feeling that led you there? And what wasn't there that did the same? Well, the first time I went to Midway, I was there at a time of year when all of the live birds are off the island. Okay. And so the, the first trip to Midway was, it was like a killing field. It was this dead island, hmm. empty, smelled horrible, because the ground was covered with tens of thousands of dead albatrosses wow. whose bodies were filled with plastic. Wow. And we were there for two weeks, and we walked around, and everywhere on the ground are dead birds. And at that time of year, they, they had already died a couple of months previously. Uh-huh. And so their bodies were already decomposed the, the, and, and eaten by various insects and beetles and stuff. Yeah. And so what was left on the ground is, the, is their feathers and their bones, like the skeletons of these birds in all kinds of the, just the saddest and most beautiful positions where their necks is like they're, they're trying to sing and they're dead on the ground and where their stomach was is a pile of brightly colored bottle caps and cigarette wow. lights and toothbrushes and just, just stupid plastic junk. Wow. And so that trip was it, it was a sliver of a much bigger story. Huh. But I didn't know that at the time. Like I thought that's the experience of Midway Island and I didn't even really think very much about the live birds at the time. So I, I did this photography project yeah. and came back from that experience devastated by what I'd seen and fell into a state of depression. Wow. Because wow. when I published this work, I received messages from all over the world. Like it went much more viral than I was expecting and more viral than anything else I had done. And the message that I received from people around the world was a message of, of despair and hopelessness. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't think of, of how, what to say. Like I wanted to try to say something that would make that work feel hopeful, but there's nothing. It was, it was horrible. And it wasn't until I returned to the island the second time to try to experience more of that story that I met the live birds. And that's when the medicine began to appear. And the name of the island, it, it, it's, it, being there is just such a poem. It's like being inside a poem. Wow. One of those aspects is the name. Like of all of the names this island could have, Midway. Uh-huh. It's like this, it's this whole philosophy of life in one word. And it challenged me to stand midway, to look at that horror, to fully witness that horror and feel everything and to feel the symbolism of it. And always reminding me, stand midway and at the same time, hold the beauty and experience the beauty and be in that envelope of mystery and, and magnificence of these birds and that island and develop the capacity to try to contain it all. I want to I want to shift slightly and ask you directly what what led you to create intolerable beauty. Um, that was a really interesting long process. Um, I had been photographing for maybe fifteen years before that series, and uh, it was under the I, I studied with my dad, who was a photographer and a, a photo collector. Hmm. Um, and what he was always interested in is the kind of photography that we call formalism, okay. which is basically just beautiful photographs um, without much thought for what the subject is. Got it. 
Hmm. And so like as opposed to photography that's that, that has like an activist component or a social social statement kind of component like form formalism is just beautiful calla lilies yeah yeah just the right light um or just the shape of gorgeous trees um and so that's what i was steeped in and yet the photographers whose work that i was most interested in were doing work that had a kind of social component as well like they're there you could analyze their work just for its beauty for its formal gorgeousness and their work was like right on the cutting edge of of of, of something uh, in a social way, and and those photographers, people like Richard Mizrak, Stephen Shore, Joel Sternfeld, yeah, and my own work for all of those years, I couldn't find the social piece. So I I was just out taking beautiful photographs of of things that I found uh, in the world, and I was living in Seattle at the time. Uh huh. And, and one thing that I really love photographing was in the alleys of downtown Seattle where like dripping old dripping drain pipes, yeah. the, the, a fern would be growing right there in the bricks because a, a drain pipe just dripped and dripped and dripped. Nice. And, but it, it always like it was, it was sort of a study in beauty, but it, it always felt irrelevant to me. And I was like, how can I find relevance? Like how can I connect with the world through my work? And just by coincidence, I sort of ran out of the alleys. And the, the alleys, if you follow Seattle's alleys, they go all the way down to the port of Seattle. And huh. so just trying to explore further and further down the alleys, I found myself in the port of Seattle. And I started taking photographs of giant piles of garbage and crushed cars and huge stacks of shipping containers. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until I was doing that for quite a while that I, it suddenly started to dawn on me that what I'm really looking at is the infrastructure of our mass consumption. Wow. And it was like, it was kind of like seeing the scary, oily machine behind the Disneyland ride. (laughs) And I realized that there was a beauty to it and there was also something terrifying about it. And that's, that was the beginning of that series that I call Intolerable Beauty. Um, You mentioned uh, your father and, and, and the type of photography he did. What role has education, and I'm broad stroking that word, played in your life and what you do? I, I went to school and studied literature. Um, hmm, okay. I, I did my undergraduate degree in American literature and then went on to law school um, wow. and, uh, and spent many years, uh, had a day job as a lawyer for a while before I could muster the courage to do what I love full time. Yeah. And I'm really glad I did my degree in literature because there's something about studying literature that really opened, it like opened a door for me into, into the universe. And what I mean by that is um, reading literature, I had some really good teachers who, were, who would teach us all about the symbolism and like the, the stories within a story that go on. Yeah. below the level of conscious awareness and i remember there was one teacher we read uh we read jane eyre Uh uh-huh and everyone in the class read jane eyre and then the teacher handed out a series of essay assignments she said you are going to read jane eyre again and write an essay about all the times that roses appear in the book and you're going to write an essay about the weather in jane eyre 
and you're going to write an essay about color every time color is mentioned. And there were 30 people in the class, 30 different assignments, and everybody came back and gave a presentation of what they'd found. And it was, it was mind blowing. Wow. That there was a thread of roses. Every time somebody dies in Jane Eyre, roses appear and you would never notice it. It's just a, a, a a, a mention and color um, and weather. Like every time something as bad is about to happen, there's ominous weather. And I, and, and in literature, I think the way those guys must write is to have an, an outline of all of these themes that they're working with uh-huh. that operate below the level of conscious awareness and that make the story archetypal and that gives it a kind of a, a symbolic depth that is is more it's more than there's there's this this power to it that way and I've been so interested in that ever since uh, as an artist like how do we build layers of yes. meaning layers of symbolism um, into our offerings that that can you know honor the complexity of our world that's and and you know I think that's um somewhat of a transcendent feature of of work uh, from from artists or writers or um, you know what is beneath the, the words that the characters are saying to move us forward in the plot. You know, there should right. always be something beneath that. You mentioned Skid Row and you mentioned um, starting uh, this project in the alleys of Seattle. How have, whether we call them mistakes or, or erroneous meanderings <laughs> contributed uh, to, your, to your work and your success with what you do? My approach to mistakes is, uh, I, I play jazz piano. That's actually my, my first love in the world. Miles Davis said something really beautiful about mistakes. He says, in jazz, there are no mistakes. Wow. And when you play a note that you didn't mean, like that you weren't, you you hear something that, wait, that's not what I thought that note was going to be. Then that becomes a new, a new melody. You're like, oh, you play that note again. And then you make a whole melody out of that note. And and that might be the basis for your entire solo. Yeah. It started out as a mistake. And I really love that. And as a photographer, I, some of some of my my favorite images are yeah. ones that I that started as a mistake, uh-huh. and I saw something in that image that I was like, "Wow, that's not what I would have thought of." And then you go back and make the same mistake intentionally, and then like, work, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and so like the mistakes. Like they come from that same unconscious place that I think is where all of our genius lies. Wow. Like it's not in the it's not in the in the conscious mind that figures stuff out. It's in the unconscious where things emerge. And and if I, I've always experienced, like if I can be open to that the 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 unknowing in that's in that process, then that's really when the magic happens. Wow! Wow! What have you learned about success from others well you know i think i would say the most i've learned about success is is in a negative way Hmm. for me like if i think of of what do i think of as as success i don't care about having a nice place i'm sleeping on a friend's couch kind of indefinitely right now (laughs) i don't care about having a nice car i don't want to get stuck in them in them like trying to be 
successful as having having a career or having a resume or something like that. Yeah, yeah. To me, what success is is having the freedom to explore something that that captures my heart. Wow. And like I just got back from two months in the American desert in Utah and Nevada. Uh-huh. And I didn't make any money. I don't know if I'm ever going to make any money from any of that work. <laughs> I did a whole new photographic project out there. And it doesn't matter because like my bank account doesn't have very much money in it right now, but like in here and in, in my heart, I feel like a billionaire. Now, let's get into the creator's state of mind. In each episode, we ask our guests to share what's been on their minds, something they can't stop thinking about, a new challenge they're facing, or what's inspired them into action recently. We call it the creator's state of mind. I've noticed lately we're living in a kind of soup of, of news about the coming environmental apocalypse. Yeah, yes. And every day, there's another article that talks about the apocalypse, the cataclysm, the disaster. And it's just from every angle is, is like this apocalyptic, like everything's getting worse and worse, faster and faster. And, and so here's this is something that I experienced when I was, when I was out in the desert. That was yeah. just the most inspiring thing is in Nevada. I'd never explored Nevada before. And I just wanted to see, like, what's there? There's this big empty map, and it's <laughs> really far apart. There's like 50 miles of nothing. Like, what is that? And I got back in there, and it is these vast wilderness areas in, like, a patchwork. Yeah. So there's one huge wilderness area that's, like, 700,000 acres right next to a, a, a national wildlife refuge, and then... Then a little strip of wilderness study area, and then and then a national park. Like every, it's this patchwork of an unbelievably vast area of of protected wilderness. And out in Nevada, there's almost no commercial agriculture going on, so there's no pesticides being used wow. in that whole part of the world. And so the insect population is is healthy. Yeah, yeah. The whole ecosystem is healthy. So I was in this valley. It's called the Panamint Valley, uh-huh. which is absolutely massive, empty space. It only has a dirt road. There's no trails. There's no visitor center. It's just real wilderness, yeah. like in Alaska. Wow. And there are these bushes there that are maybe four feet tall. And I, I made these photographs of the bushes up close and then the valley just goes and goes and goes and you see the bushes get smaller and smaller and smaller until they're so far away that they're they're just a dot and then beyond that it's it just turns into a green texture that like billions of these bushes and every single one of those bushes if you go up and touch the bush 50 butterflies fly out wow there are i don't know how many hundreds of billions of butterflies in this empty protected space in our country wow the, and and it's healthy and one morning it was dead still there was not the tiniest breath of wind the nearest other human is I, I don't know how many tens or 20 miles away and the butterflies were out flying and i could hear a sound that was their wings beating 
the beating wings of a billion butterflies. And I thought about all those articles that are talking about mass extinction and apocalypse, and I'm like, that's, that's overdone. There is healthy, huge, beautiful, mystical wilderness right here in our own country and, and really all over the world. I think I just had this feeling of hope and inspiration. It's like we can, I think we can soften our idea that everything's getting so bad so fast and maybe just take a breath and take just enough time to fall back in love with the beauty of our world and, and, and then go forward from there instead of from this energy that's like, everything is so bad. The beating wings of a million butterflies. That's cool. It is always a valuable learning opportunity to take time to reflect. At the end of each interview, we like to ask our guests this. In hindsight, what is something you wish you would have known when you were starting out? You know what? I think if someone had come to me when I was younger and told me, sort of given me the lessons or the whatever, the whatever, wisdom that I have learned, I don't think I would have listened. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything that if I had yeah. known that, that it would have really, like we, I think we have to learn. Of course. As we go. And this is, this is one thing that's, uh, that's really kind of a revelation to me is I was just talking with my 23 year old son and he's in the process of growing up and he doesn't like growing up. He's like, I don't want to grow up. Yes. Yes. I have and one of those been resisting and I remember I resisted growing up I thought growing up was bad like it was gonna suck <laughs> like childhood is when you get to have all your fun and then you become a grown-up and life sucks but it to me it just gets better and better like yeah. as a grown-up there's so much more freedom and you have so much more power and resources available and and so I guess maybe that's one thing is is life gets better all the time that's one thing I wish I didn't know Tune into our next episode for a moving conversation with Regina Louise, an author and UCR alumna whose memoirs of growing up in the foster care system inspired the Lifetime movie, I Am Somebody's Child. Thanks for listening. Find more information about our guests at creatorstate.com. Do you know someone creating something great? Send us what you're creating for a chance to be featured in an upcoming episode. Write to us at creatorstate at ucr.edu. There's a team creating this podcast. Help us by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. And while you are there, leave us a review. Our producer for this show is Jennifer Merritt, with audio and editing by Chan Moon and Kevin Williams. Digital strategy by Kelly McGrail and Madeline Adamo. Designed by Chrissy Danforth, Denise Wolf, Brad Rowe, and creative director, Luis Sands. Special thanks to Christy Zwicky and Jessica Weber. This show is brought to you by the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rekurby Hines. Thanks for joining us in the Creator State.